You are tuned into the Gen X Show with Jeff Morton, your host who behaves like he's 10 years older than he actually is. We talk horror movies, music, and culture from the generation that couldn't be bothered to put its stamp on society. And now, here's your host, me. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining me on the latest Gen X show. Um, today, got a I, actually kind of an impromptu episode that I actually wasn't intending on recording, that, but this was sprung out of a conversation I was having with uh, my friend, John Michael. Um, so, John Michael, this is your first appearance since our marathon uh, Machina, Machines of the Gods <clears throat> uh, podcast in January. Um, yes. How are you feeling? Are you, are you ready for a, a, a slightly uh, less long podcast today? I I am I am yes. Okay, <laughs> Think hey, I can do talking, that. We're, no, we're not talking about a shitty album this time. So I mean, that's all, right. That's all right. All in all, we're ahead of the game. I think. Um, that's right. Uh, so you know, you and I were talking yesterday. Uh, you were listening to the uh, uh, podcast that I did with John Ekstrom. Uh, if you haven't mm-hmm. heard that one, uh, please go listen to that. Uh, it was a pretty good conversation. Uh, John's a. a Younger than John Michael and I, but he's got that elder millennial thing, which I have always described elder millennials as, um, uh, like people who were born like 1981 to like 1983, four. I always describe them as people who were almost kind of Gen Xers, but are significantly less cynical. So uh, that is, <laughs> but I'm able to communicate with these people via like the. You know, not necessarily shared experiences, but the mutual obsession with music, which I think kind of goes across generational thing right there. So mm-hmm. we were talking and we were talking about the concept of selling out, um, which permeated the 90s. And you 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 expressed to me some thoughts about that uh, via text. And uh, I was like, you know what? We need to we need to do a podcast about this because it's just that's right. Let's just sit down and sort this out, right? <laughs> it's a fertile territory. It is really fertile territory. But before we get to that, uh, mm-hmm. you re- really uh, recently went to Blighty, old Blighty. Uh, you went to England yep. and uh, you went there for actually a festival, right? Yeah, for a number of shows. Um, so you know, th- there aren't many 44 year old ravers in the United States and I happen to be one of them. So I took advantage of that chance. I have a bunch of friends out in the UK and out in Europe and we got together and I went and saw yeah, several shows. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, there was a festival mixed in there, um, in, uh, out in mainly in London, uh, or London area rather. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, got to, see prodigy get back together after keith flint's death three years ago mm, yeah. um at uh, brixton academy um and then i saw uh fatboy slim's 20th anniversary he had a legendary dj set out in uh brighton mm. in 2002 where some 250,000 people showed up and nice. it was kind of a crazy mess and so the 20th wow. anniversary of that they uh they scaled it down significantly it was like maybe 20 or thirty thousand people <laughs> i didn't i i was able to see the show from without actually having to go in and pay for a ticket so i got to see him on the, that that next day and then after that went to uh alexandra palace um 
there was a festival there and Orbital was headlining. So that was uh, the main reason for my trip. And I got to go out there and uh, see them. I hadn't seen them live since they came to the Gothic uh, here in Denver in 2001. Mm -hmm. And so that was really exciting. I got to meet the band as well. And that was a, you know, that was a, a a thrill of a lifetime for me. So I saw the pictures. I saw the pictures. You actually sent some to me. I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I've had best laid plans. I initially had a uh, England trip planned for September and that all went to crap. Um, but, uh, you know, both you and I have a bunch of friends in the, in the UK and I've always wanted to go over there just for, because they treat the musical experience a little differently than we do out here. Um, it's hard mm-hmm. to explain. It's not better. It's just different. And it's, um, they're much more into festivals out there. They're much more into, you know, they got Glastonbury, you know, mm-hmm. they do one in uh, Reading. There, there used to be Monsters of Rock and that changed to, what did they change the name to that? A do- download, the Download Festival out there. Yeah, and I think that's it, what it is, yeah. And they have just festival after festival. After. It's, it's like it's a rite of passage for anyone mm-hmm. who is in their late teens uh, in, in England to go uh, to a festival out there, which is something we mm-hmm. do not have out here at all. Mm-mm. That is, that is, no. it used to be Lollapalooza and that only, now that is exclusively in Chicago. So <laughs> it's no longer yeah, a and, traveling uh, show. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the festivals there are like, okay, we're just doing it here and you got to come to it where, yeah. Lollapalooza, mm-hmm. or remember Lilith Fair, and some Lilith of the Fair. other ones in the '90s that were really big at the time were just all kind of. What do we got out here? Bonnaroo and uh, Coachella. Uh, yeah, B- Burning Man would be another one I, I think Man. of too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that but Burning Man's more of a hippie experience. Um, uh, yeah, that's and... true. <laughs> yeah, more and... more than a music festival. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then it, there... it searches for hippies. Right. Right. <laughs> I, I've met a couple of people who've gone to that, and I'm like, there's a reason I don't associate with you. Um, but there is, <laughs> um, but there's like, yeah, like there's, you know, I say Bonnaroo and um, uh, Coachella. <laughs> Coachella is the big one, I guess. That's the that's the one that's the every mm-hmm. year, no matter what festival mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in California. But you know, it, it, it's interesting because I I've wanted I wanted to go out there, but uh, you know, your experience going out there. How long were you in England? uh 10 days i think 10 days wow mm-hmm. wow that, you know then you know my first thought and this is old person brain is that that must have been <laughs> expensive <laughs> you know it worked out where it wasn't as bad as i thought it would be okay, um, good. <laughs> yeah so oh i you know i stayed with a friend and that made it a lot cheaper i wasn't staying at a hotel mm-hmm. i didn't rent a car i took you know mass transit everywhere or got rides or whatever um that, yeah, it would be very expensive if I did it kind of like if I was traveling to, you know, Los Angeles or Chicago or something, you know, where I'd have to. So it it worked out quite a, quite nicely, I think. I, I, I spent a lot less than I expected to. Now, if I, my wife was going to come with me, that would probably be, you know, a lot more. But, yeah, it worked yeah. out. But still, I mean, it's a good you that you got that experience. And um, like I said, I enjoyed the pictures that you sent up. Uh, and, you know, it kind of goes in with what we've been talking about. Um, you know, and specifically, I, I sent you an article um, mm-hmm. that's been making the rounds from Fatherly, which is something that I had not really was, wasn't really familiar with. Yeah, um, that's the first time I've been on their site that I'm aware of. And there's this revisionist history article about Oasis's follow up to uh, 
uh, their big one in 95, uh, which was mm-hmm. the one that had Wonderwall on it. Okay, what's the story, Morning what's Glory? What's the story, Morning Glory? Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, which was a fine representation of Britpop in the mid-90s, I think, is, is the way I would put what's the story, Morning Glory. Mm-hmm. Uh, Noel Gallagher is a very good writer of rock tunes, um, mm-hmm. pop rock tunes. Um, and But they always meant a lot more to England than they did to anything in the United States. They had, there was that, there was that brief, and mm-hmm. I do mean brief blip in yeah, 90, between 95 and 96, where they were yeah. huge out here. Right. And it was two years. And then that's when Blur was out here. And, um, and they didn't reach the heights of Oasis, but, you know, they had song number two. And, um, and then, yeah, I think that's all I can remember about making an impact out here. Um, Mm-hmm. They kind of lump the Verve into that, and the Verve weren't really Britpop. They were shoegazy. Um, yeah, and they were definitely a, considered a one-hit wonder out here, even though they yes. had been around for a long time and you know, been fairly successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bittersweet Symphony. Yeah, the whole. I think they're more famous about the, the oh, <laughs> Rolling Stones. The lawsuit <laughs> with the yes. Rolling Stones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, uh, but the 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 British band of the '90s that made the biggest impact was obviously Radiohead, and they don't fit into that category at all. Um, yeah. But the Britpop thing was just a just a as many songs as I like of Blur's, and I really do really like a lot of Blur songs. Yeah, I I think I own as many Blur albums as I do. I have the first two Oasis albums, but I think I have at least two or three Blur albums. I, yeah, I I'm I kind of more partial to them as a, especially even at the time. But as I've gotten older too, I've always really liked Blur more. Well, Damon Albarn is even though he um, is this posh British person who used the uh, affectation on his voice to make him sound a little more British uh, than he mm-hmm. than he you know a little more forwardly British than he was. Uh, he is also very good artist, I think. Um, yeah. But for that, for that matter, so is no, no Gallagher, Gallagher, but it's, it depends on how much mm-hmm. you like that sort of thing. But the, but the reason mm-hmm. I brought, I sent you that article was like, there's this, there's this attempt at a reappraisal of an album that came out in 1997, Be Here Now, mm-hmm. which made, I mean, it actually went platinum here in the States, which I was very stunned by. Because I remember mm-hmm. them album making zero impact. I mean, literally no impact on the cultural landscape yeah. of the late '90s. Did, 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 do you have the same memory? Yeah, yeah. So I remember, uh, I remember when "Be Here Now" came out. I remember there was a lot of kind of buzz around it, but I, in in a way, I feel like Oasis. Oasis kind of got it start in the United States on alternative rock radio, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you had like Live Forever. I remember Live Forever was like on MTV's Buzzbin in like in ni- late 94, early 95. Yep. And then um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other songs. But yeah, they got a lot of alternative rock radio play. And then when, holy crap, that's a huge spider in my <laughs> basement. Wow, that thing's like two inches. Whoa. Anyway, sorry. I digress. <laughs> I just stared at this huge wolf spider like six feet from me. Um, I, I'm, but, I'm debating uh, about whether I'm going to cut that out or leave it in, but I may just leave it in for the comment. It's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I, I, wow. Um, if you need to take care of it, I'm No, I'm, but <laughs> no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. Um, yeah, it's not going to come out and attack me or anything. Okay. But, just, uh, wolf spider. yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I uh, the album, yeah, it was kind of a, a blip on the radar. You know, they had the 
Um, but yeah, I think they, when they kind of reached mainstream success, you know, it was like uh, Champagne Supernova and Wonderwall. Wonderwall, right? And then yeah. uh, was the other one I was thinking of. Um, uh, Don't look back in anger. Was Don't look one. back it's in just anger. Like, yeah, I feel this, like this... it was their most Beatles sounding song ever. They were very you know, good at the like sing along songs. A... They had the sing along songs, which were which mm-hmm. were very impactful, as I remember. Mm-hmm. So it, it, yeah, it, it, yeah, and but by then it was like they were kind of forgotten. Like by the end of the year, it's like they, you know, the United States had moved on. It, it's very indicative of how the United States treats music, I think, versus how it treats, how other countries treat music, you know? I think it's one of those things that I, at least I've observed in my Well, in someone my time. once told me about the British press is that they build you up only so they can get you to a point where they start tearing you down, and then they mm-hmm. will go back to pining for you to get the original band that they tore down back together. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's... That is this cycle so that the true. British press goes on. Uh, out here, we yeah. kind of do. We do a hero worship thing with much more, which is somehow, which is how I think has led to U2's continued popularity relatively much longer than it probably should have been. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just we treat things differently. But in, specifically in the late 90s, um, you know, one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on and talk about this, because you, you and I got into a conversation about, about the decline of music in general in the late nineties and how, I mean, my memory of it was, it was just awful. And I really had to search really hard to, I was buying Mojo magazine back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, they used to come with those, uh, you remember those uh, CDs that were yes, attached to yes. the, uh, those sample CDs that they would send out with these, which were really convenient if you're really trying to look for some new, new music. Mm-hmm. And I, that's how I found, um, Dry the Rain by uh, uh, Beta Band. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I heard it in High Fidelity in 2000. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, all right. That's just, but there was that, you had to search for it. Outside of that, the late 90s, into my memory, and maybe you have the same one, is like that the, it was almost a hellscape of music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're totally right. I I feel like I would say it really, well, part of it, I would contribute to is the Telecommunications Act of 1996 because mm. that's when radio stations in the United States, they were limited. A company was limited on how many stations they could own across the entire country. I think it was like eight or something. Mm. And then they lifted that cap completely. And so then, yeah, you had companies like j who became Clear Channel. And then within like by 2001, 2002, had, had 1,200 radio stations that they owned across the United States. Mm. And I feel like it made, well, it made radio um, profitable, Mm -hmm. but it homogenized the quality of radio. And so I feel like what ended up happening is you had music that was becoming very derivative sounding because it wanted to get played on, get the rotation that it wanted. Where, you know, for years, I think of stations uh, that were based out here in Denver, like think of KVCO back in the 70s and 80s, or you think of, you know, yeah, yeah, KTCL back when it was in Fort Collins in the Mm -hmm. 80s and 90s and 70s. KBPI, KAZY, like all of these old stations, they were, a lot of them were locally owned for many, many years. And Mm -hmm. so, the program director was a part of the community, was a, um, uh, was, you know, they had a lot more freedoms when they weren't a part of this huge corporate entity. So I know that maybe is kind of diverging from maybe mm-hmm. the, the question you were asking, but mm-hmm. I feel like 
that had as much to do with the change in music, especially rock music in the late nineties as anything else in my opinion. I mean, that's, was like one of those things that I, when I discovered it was like, Oh, it makes perfect sense as to why music sounds like garbage right now. You know, when I was 21 or whatever. Well, yeah. I mean, look at it this way. Um, technology and cons- te- technology you know, like coll- collides with consolidation a lot. The ease with which you are able to access something um, is very convenient for you know, the gathering of, of corporate interests in, in which they end up consolidating and new mass marketing things, which will sell you back very easily consumed products, which are very mm-hmm. good for whatever bottom line they got. Mm-hmm. And uh, you look at Apple and Spotify, you know, right now, which are the main music distributors and it it, it leads to that sort of thing. And I could go down a very cynical path here, talking about that sort of thing. Uh, And I won't, there was a, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a thread uh, on Twitter earlier today, extolling the virtues of blockbuster video. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Wow. If you guys could only see John Michael's face. Um, (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Heart. I'm like, how old is that person under the age of 25? I mean, that wrote that. I mean, seriously, were you not around? (laughs) But Blockbuster, like, it was much better when it was independent uh, video places. Uh, oh, absolutely. I've told, I've told this story before. I, I, my family were one of the last holdouts for having Betamax. <laughs> so <laughs> we, every time I tell this story, people are like, what is that? I'm like, I have to go through this thing. But you, and you are one of the few people who I've had on this thing will understand me. And... um we, we, it was just the, there was this one uh, independent place in Arvada, I forget where it was, that sold Betamax, but they put it next to the horror and porn in, in behind a beaded curtain. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is oh one, of my, <laughs> one of my favorite stories. That's hilarious. One of my favorite stories. We had to shamefully walk through this beaded, this family, this beaded curtain to go see the... Uh, get the Betamax cassettes and they were right next to, you know, some, you know, the porn box or maybe does Dallas three or something. Right. right. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, that, anyway, that, but uh, there's still uh, all that going on, but they did the, the, but the, the, the one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, we're talking about music. You brought up James or you brought up James cause I brought up James on the podcast, but James was an interesting mm-hmm. thing cause they were an early nineties. Very, I always associate them with uh, REM. They're, they're, they're to me. They are, mm-hmm. The British REM is what James was, mm, and that's an interesting. Yeah, that's I, funny. I never thought about that. And um, you know, uh, it, it, Tim, uh, this lead singer, Tim. Uh, oh my God! Anyway, you're gonna, you're gonna have to look this up for me because I completely spaces. But his first name is Tim. Um, he uh, uh, isn't. You know, he's bald, like Michael Stipe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He's Tim not. Is. Tim Booth. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but he's not a, he's not a twat like Michael, Michael Stipe. So, um, but anyway, um, we, <laughs> um, uh, he, that's how I always associate him. And they had this song, was it say something, say something, anything that, that mm-hmm. song. And mm-hmm. I, remember, I remember hearing that, I think it was early nineties. I may be getting my timeline, but I remember hearing that. And then I heard laid the song laid and that was playing mm-hmm. on college radio all yes the time 
and it drove the album up the charts and it was their biggest hit in, mm-hmm. in America. And I became a fan mm-hmm. just through yeah. hearing that. And that was the early nineties, but you didn't get that mm-hmm. sort of thing post 1996. I mean, in the, in mm-hmm. 1996, it was harder and harder to find things like that, particularly if you're consuming things on the radio, as you were pointing out with mm-hmm. the kind of the consolidation of the, of the radio outlets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's really kind of an interesting thing. I, it's one of those things that I think people don't recognize or realize. You know, for us, for our generation, music, how we found new music was from the radio. And yeah. so if radio was not playing any, I mean, and for a lot of people, that's they would just accept whatever was being played. You know, if they liked the, what they they played, they people would just kind of go, "Oh, okay, this is what's good" or whatever. And it never really, people would consume it passively. But there were great stations that were always good at going, "Hey, you want to check this out?" Or they'd have shows devoted to specific styles or scenes, and it would encourage me to go out to the record store. It would go, yeah. and then you know flipping through racks of CDs or records or whatever and go, ah, and going all over town to try to find one specific record that you're been dying to, you know, to find or special order it through, through, I mean, all that. It was such a, 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 an immersive hobby that in a lot of ways nowadays, like, like you've talked about, you can go on YouTube and literally find anything that was recorded in the last 120 years on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and, uh, Another thing that I've always kind of clung to is, and, and it wasn't say anything by uh, James. It was sit down. Oh, sit mm. down. Okay, I'll yeah, yeah. Sit down, come sit down. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I haven't heard that in forever. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, the one of the things that led to, um, I, I think, a better quality and consumption of music was also the search. Um, mm-hmm. And the search got harder. I remember it getting significantly harder in the late nineties. Um, mm-hmm. And you're right with our access to two things. It was radio or it was 120 minutes on, on uh, MTV. Sometimes VH1 would have some good shit. Teletoons on PBS. Teletoons. Yeah. And it just, they, they would do, they would, there were mm-hmm. still things like that, but 120 minutes relevance really kind of diminished by about 95. Uh, once oh, alternative yeah. music you know, whatever relevance it had started going down. Right. Um, when it when it lost its meaning and definition of what it meant to be alternative. <laughs> yes. And, you know, people were no longer taking Matt Pinfield seriously. Um, so, I, you know, <laughs> uh, but the, you know, we, we, I, I just was thinking about this thing because it's, it is weird how the corporatization of music, and I, I hate to sound like one of those people who talks about corporate things all the time, but you know, in some cases it's true. Mm-hmm. The corporatization of music really did kind of homogenize it. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I always, I, I, I talk to you, you uh, about you know basketball and uh, a, a shared fave of ours, and I talk mm-hmm. about how there, there's just the, the diversification of play style in basketball really basically ended in about the early 2010s mm-hmm. and just began going to this more thing. But it, it goes through cycles like that. With music, I think the ease of access hurt it. The ease of access to music made everyone go immediately to things that is would become ear candy, I guess is the best way to put it. Things that are mm-hmm. just pleasing to the ear and stuff like that. And it doesn't lead people to necessarily search out things 
um, that they that they like, or maybe things that will challenge what they already are are liking. You know, maybe maybe this is a crackpot theory. I bet it is, but you know. Well, you know, aside from the radio industry consolidating, record labels did the same thing at around the same time. Yep. And Sony, so now, Columbia. right, exactly. And I remember a time when Interscope Records was kind of an edgy, cool record label to be on. And then all of a sudden now it's become like, you know. The, it's an adjunct big... of Live Nation now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, you have, now you're you're not only answering to, you know, if you're a small label, you're usually, you're not run as a corporation, you're run as a small business. And so the uh, flexibility in some ways is greater because you're not having to, you know, if you're in a, in a corporate record label, you have shareholders, mm-hmm. you have a board of directors, you have all of these people you have to answer to. And so now you're investing more into fewer songs. I mean, think about the early 90s when Nirvana blew up. Everybody wanted to find their next Nirvana. And so you were signing all of these bands that kind of had that sound or that kind of alternative vibe to them mm-hmm. to record deals. And they signed 10 bands to it. And then, you know, if only one or two panned off, uh, panned out, they would cover the cost of the other eight effortlessly. And they mm-hmm. would still be making so much money off of them. Um, and, and so now in the late nineties, when you have this consolidation going on, now you're investing more into fewer artists. And so it has to, has to be guaranteed a, a hit. Right. Otherwise, you know, now you're not being able to spend cause you're not, you, you're, you're, you're not, otherwise you're not making money for your shareholders. And, and it feel like what happens now is it, it becomes music as a, uh, as a commodity rather is than music as an art form. That is a, that's a great comment. I, I think that another contributing factor was CDs became absolutely ridiculous in yes. how expensive they were. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember in 2000, I bought a single CD. I forget who the artist was, but I, I remember the price. It was $23 for a single CD. <laughs> and which I'm like, is insane. I, which is nuts. Because I remember in 1990, 1990, I went to Musicland and I bought a double, one of those double cassette things. And um, remember, sometimes record labels used to do the... Um, uh, if they're trying to promote an artist, um, they will double side it with like give you a double cassette mm-hmm. thing with one artist and another right. artist. And mm-hmm. I bought one, and I I heard this band called Burning Tree, and they they I would have never heard them otherwise uh, without stumbling upon this because I I forget who the, was on the other side of it was Epic Records back then, which no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, Pearl Jam's old label, yeah. Pearl Jam's a little, and this was pre-Pearl Jam. This was ninety, and I'm, I'm, I'm. I remember listening to this, and I never would have heard Burning Tree otherwise. I never would have heard it. Well, if we fast forward just ten years, you've got CDs that are coming out for twenty-three bucks, and it, it got insane. And I can understand why people start going towards, particularly college students, start going towards Napster. Um, in 2000, mm-hmm. 2001, that area right there, the Great Metallica, mm-hmm. the lawsuit. Yep. I understand why that happened because you know mm-hmm. record companies were pricing the hell out of these these CDs. Which, by the way, it was very clear when you were able to make your own mix of CDs that CDs are not that expensive <laughs> to print right. or make. And if it was discovered that they were gouging the crap out of people on mm-hmm. these things, 
I remember cassette tapes never got that expensive. I don't remember them ever getting proportionally, yeah. swing, you know, you know, uh, inflation considered. Well, it, it was cassettes were sold as kind of an inferior audio. I mean, cassettes were sold as a convenient portable yeah. alternative because I mean, you had LPs, and then CDs can't. CDs were this superior audio audio format, which mm-hmm. I, you know, and so that's that's what you were selling it on. So that makes sense why why CDs would be mm-hmm. so pricey. This is true, but I, 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 when when you first got cassettes, they were great. First got mm-hmm. them, they sounded wonderful, depending on the quality of uh, player player you had. And then, mm-hmm. but you know, after about a month of playing, you would start to get them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you'd get like the sound would like the stereo signal would cut out out of one ear. Yes, little bits <laughs> here and there, or yeah, especially at the beginning of the tape and. Yes. Oh, yeah. You never leave your tape in the car. Don't leave your tape in the car. They will nope, melt. Nope. Um, nope. But, you know, those are the things. And, and this more than just old man talk, I really do do think that by 96, the decay of, of popular music began, began in earnest in a, in a sense that mm-hmm. it's not just – and you pointed this out um, – or that we came to this conclusion last night, they were no longer marketing to people like you and me by the time the late 90s rolled around. It really is when millennial listeners start taking over. Um, mm. You and I were already too old by 2000. <laughs> we were 22. We were 22. That's <laughs> so funny. I was like, aren't I still part of your target demographic? Like, that's what I kept wanting to ask. I'm like, why are you playing this nonsense? Yeah. Especially like with the advent of new metal. The, yeah, yeah, the worst. And I always tell people, I said, like, if there's anything that Gen X needs to apologize for, it's new metal. Because yes. I mean, that is it's the wor- one of the worst forms of music that have ever come out, and it yeah. dominated for like what? I mean, I think what was it? Uh, I remember being in high school, senior year, ninety six, when I first heard Limp Biscuit. I think oh, where yeah. they had that song Faith, right? Faith. Yeah, it was like 96, 97 in that range. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's what I first heard at least. Yeah. And and it's like, this is garbage. But then of course corn was really popular back then. And... Yeah, corn corn kind of blew up in ninety-five. I remember on rock radio, like uh 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 follow the leader and mm-hmm. some of the uh, our uh oh I can't remember the names of the songs anymore, but yeah, yeah. I never was a big corn fan ever. Was like, no. Yeah. It wasn't and then my everyone style. started down tuning after that. Really down tuning. Yeah, it wasn't like drop D, it was like drop E. And it was like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like you're basically playing a six string bass at that point. Yeah. Right, right. Now everyone has bar- they, they, now they you know have baritone guitars out now. Have you ever mm-hmm. have you ever played one of those? They're they're actually mm-hmm. pretty cool sounding. I just mm-hmm. anyway, yeah. that's that's a tangent. <laughs> um but that is where, you know, and, and the, the point I want to lead to is, and by the way, I tend to lead John Michael on tangents here, so I apologize. It's okay. Um, but <laughs> the point I'm getting to is, like, we were already past it by the time 2000 rolled around. Mm-hmm. And we sure were past it by 2001. Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, that god-awful band, Creed, you know, oh, yeah. and they started blowing up, and mm-hmm. these 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 bands right around that era. We were already not the market, and that is fascinating to me. And that is why I tell people my music peak was basically ninety one to ninety 
95. You could probably mm-hmm. stretch it into 96 a little. Mm-hmm. Right there, there's that five-year thing where from I was, you know, 13 to, to 18 mm-hmm. was basically where I'm like, I consumed and valued the most music. And then everything I did after that, everything from sign 96 to I continue to this day, it was me, re, you know, listening to stuff that was before my time. You know, mm-hmm. Re- mm-hmm. discovering researching artists in the seventies and sixties and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. and it is weird how that happened. I don't know. I don't. And I think that may be just indicative of me. Um, and I, I'm, I'm my kind mm-hmm. of rejection of popular stuff. I tend to like if it's popular, I don't like you kind of thing, which is a really terrible, terrible attitude to have. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I an attitude that I adopted for many years, and maybe in small part to this day, I still kind of have that attitude. <laughs> You're a sellout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, no. we, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. And I think the same thing for me. Like what I keep thinking of is I remember feeling like I when I'm, you know, ninety, like 1998, 1999, feeling like, like. All everything that has musically that it's significant that happened to me was now reduced to nothing because right. they didn't play it anymore. It was almost like like the uh, embarrassing ex girlfriend that nobody wants to talk about. <laughs> like oh yeah, like it was almost like you know you pull out old pictures and it's like oh oh yeah I forgot about that. Let me go pretend like these don't exist and kind of push them aside. Yeah. Oh, and I it was like. That. Oh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, that's what it felt kind of, I guess, like it. What, what frustrates me so much about Americans in music, and this is kind of a good contrast to what I experience, um, is is they 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 are always American music to me is always chasing trends mm-hmm. and they don't embrace it's almost like they don't embrace enough of the musical palette in the United States because maybe of sheer size and volume. But it's like you think about like my I I started I basically almost completely stopped listening to rock music in the mm-hmm. late '90s. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say exclusively because I still it it's rare I listen to a rock band nowadays that I really right. gotten into in the last 20 years. Right. But I got into electronic music and and I feel like you know the United States created electronic music mm-hmm. or, or at least house and techno music was founded in Chicago and Detroit and stuff in the 1980s and the United States didn't know what to do with it and they just ignored it and you know it, it had too much to do with black culture and and LGBT mm-hmm. culture and want anything to do with it mm-hmm. and so then it got you know sent over to the UK and Germany and all over Europe and it became really their adopted and preferred form of music and it's become it's as much a part of their musical culture as listening to the beatles or or pink floyd or u2 or whoever in the last you know 50 60 years like like you i was watching i rewatched the 2012 olympic opening ceremonies in in london Mm -hmm. and they had a whole section devoted to electronic music like United States would never do that no. here. Like it would be like, oh, let's. If we were going to focus on music, it would be what is the most current thing now, and what people are sporting wood about that happened forty years ago. You know, I keep thinking of um, what was that scene in the early '90s in uh, the UK? What was it called? Uh, Madchester, where mm-hmm. they there was a an explosion of house uh, music. Mm-hmm. 
which I always consider British house music because it's, it's it's really different from what we mm-hmm. do did out mm-hmm. here. And then I associate a lot of those acts that came out in really in the early nineties um, that were uh, like very indi- they had a lot of electronic sounds to them, like Stone what? Roses' first album, Stone Roses. Is that mm-hmm. band? Maybe I'm associating this song with the wrong thing. What was the right here, right now song? Um, oh, you're thinking of Jesus Jones, EMF. Jesus, yeah, EMF. Uh, Stereo MCs. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. all had a, yeah. The very, not electronic, but a very poppy electronic song, it sound, yeah. I guess is the best way to put it. And I remember all that, and it made a brief, G- Jesus Jones was uh, right here, right now, that's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember that 1991 that was all the rage before grunge mm-hmm. took over in fact mm-hmm. in fact you can draw a line to where that song died right and so when, uh, smells like teen never, spirit yeah when over. Nevermind came out yeah <laughs> right? i mean just like you there is is that that song no longer being played now everyone's wearing flannel and wearing shorts and mm-hmm. but it was a very american thing jesus jones was a very british uh, british yeah. european thing and mm-hmm. But that's we we tend to like what we do, but we like it as a trend. And I think I think what you're pointing out too is like the the trendiness of it. If it's if it becomes a sensation, it's just like the Britpop thing. Coming back to that, that was a sensation. That was a very weird weird two years. That was a very mm-hmm. bizarre two years where it every the entire United States fell in love with Oasis. It was it was you'll I don't think you'll ever see anything mm-hmm. like that again when you're talking about. Um, Britain and then the United States. That's that. It was just a very weird blip, and that's that yeah. album sold a billion. I mean, it's just insane. Americans like British if they don't sound British. You know what I mean? Like if it's, right. uh, you know, that's probably why Adele Adele doesn't sing with her Cockney accent. You know what I mean? Like right. she's singing, you know, or. I mean, that's, I think, yeah, like you're to bring to to illustrate your point with Oasis. I mean, Oasis definitely didn't sound. American when they way they sang where they performed all of that stuff, um, I would say even they sounded more British to me than even the Beatles did. Uh, oh yeah, in, in some ways, um, yeah, and yeah, it, it's it's very strange because the United States is like just they don't want, and it's not even anything. It, it I think what it is and is is the United States and their superiority complex when it comes to music. Like mm-hmm. we, unless we yeah. invent it, unless it originated from us and wasn't influenced by anywhere else in the world, it's, you know, we won't play it. Or, I mean, that's why hip hop country um, rock music are so still prevalent in American music because mm-hmm. technically those are American styles with quotations around American styles. Right. Right. Um, and, nothing else really matters and and which which why not there's other styles of music like i've said previously that were invented here but they just disowned but but Mm -hmm. yeah it's like it's really frustrating as a fan of music that's not based in the united states particularly to find anything here i mean thank goodness for the internet because i can access it as much as i could you know 30 years ago when i wanted to listen to it on the radio but it's still just this complete like i don't know we're we're great we're better than everybody nobody does it like we do which okay you could say that nobody does like we do for better for worse so 
I'll give you that. But <laughs> music, music nationalism. <laughs> yeah, it's really what it is. I totally agree. I mean, yeah, I, I, I it's so rare that you see. I mean, nothing against the Coldplay, and I'm not a huge fan by any stretch. But I, I go Coldplay was successful because they sounded very homogenized. Like they just, it was like we needed a British band, right? You know, U two's kind of dried up and yeah. uh, Oasis is no no longer relevant. We needed a British band to be infatuated with to make it to make us sound like we're important. Are you, are you saying token token British? We need, we need a, a token, token British band. For every generation has a token British band throughout <laughs> since since the Beatles, you know, it's like okay. <laughs> that Americans are infatuated with. You know, I was I was thinking, you know, when you're talking about music that it's weird how, um, how we will reject something, um, particularly disco. Now, disco wasn't a tremendous form of music, but it had some good qualities. I mean, the best the best disco ever produced was probably the Bee Gees, and they they made it like they they were already an existing pop group mm-hmm. prior to them getting into disco. So maybe that made it easier for people to accept, you know, that sort of thing. But it's mm-hmm. almost it's weird, you know. There's the famous mm-hmm. Uh, incident in that at uh, Comiskey Park in uh, uh, right. Chicago with the big disco record burning thing in like '79 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> there was also an extremely homophobic aspect to this. Yeah, where they were like, "Oh my God, this is music for fags. We're not right. going to. We are not going to be listening to this." And mm. I think that part is. Uh, by the way, people, I'm gay. I could say that. Um, <laughs> People, people can, people looked at that and they're like, no, we can't associate with that because the, the studio 50, studio 54, um, there's, uh, which in 1982, David Thompson fell down the, uh, stairs of, and Mm -hmm. I think, uh, broke his leg or something like that. It was something Mm -hmm. insane. Um, but there was all this stuff that was associated with it that was primarily urban and gay culture that the Americans completely rejected. Mm-hmm. And it's in, in, and it's weird how we as a country do that. And I, I separated myself from that as if I'm not an American, which is, which is dumb, but <clears throat> we, we do that sometimes. And it's, it's, it's a strange phenomena where we decide that we're, we're, this is now no longer acceptable because some hick in Alabama got his you know a light bulb come out over his head and this music's for gay people and then they suddenly start burning disco records even though it was the most popular form of music in mm-hmm. for like five years in the 70s you know so mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. sorry to get into music history here I, I start becoming like i need like uh, elbow patches on, on in a in a tweed jacket <laughs> that's right <laughs> leather patches on a tweed blazer not the other way around you've ruined a perfectly good jacket Yes, uh, Simpsons, Simpsons reference. We got, we got to do it. We got to do it. Um, um, you know, yeah, yeah. But I was, we were pointing that out, and I was like, you know, you're, you're right. We do reject. We do reject. I mean, almost, and it's almost like it becomes permanently dislodged from our memories. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it becomes a something that we just think that oh no, that was just that that never happened. There was this big gap, five year gap in the late seventies where. Nothing happened. We just didn't. We didn't do anything. Right. It's been stricken from the record. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> kind of whitewashed. I agree. So, um, but so you know, coming back to the late '90s, I think I think in the grand scheme of things, 
And I think more than anything else, where I was talking about how they know we're no longer marketing to us, mm-hmm. maybe every group of people, once they reach a certain age, reaches uh, a point where the, the, they identify that you are not the person who is going to be buying, um, say, like by 1990, what, nine Britney Spears comes out. Mm-hmm. But you're not buying a Britney Spears record. Uh, you are 20 by the time we were 21. So you are not buying a Britney Spears record. You are not buying Christina Aguilera. You're not buying NSYNC. You're not buying New Kids on the Block. You're you're not New Kids on the Block. That was the late 80s. Uh, I mean... Uh, uh, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys. Backstreet Boys, degrees. there we go. They're, they're all, they're all, all the Max Martin bands. Yes, they're, they're, all the, they're just one homogenous band for me. Mm-hmm. Um so you're not buying that. So the record companies are like, okay, these people will find music themselves. But the problem was with the, as you were talking about with the corporatization of it, it became hard to find, mm-hmm. which is why I suddenly started beginning discovering a bunch of stuff that happened, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And, and listening to that a lot is because um, they weren't marketing to, to me anymore. There wasn't, and not that I need to, because I mm-hmm. tend to reject hype, so maybe that's the contradiction here, is that my rejection of hype or anything that is sold to me probably contributed to my lack of accepting the trends that were happening circa 2000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like it's, it's really, yeah, it, it was very frustrating for me because all of a sudden I feel like, um, like I feel like, like the the past didn't happen and the significance of that music didn't happen. And it was really kind of isolating in a lot of ways because even among friends of mine and close associates that they kind of adopted that, that thinking too, where it was like, Oh, what music? Like they don't even like, I'm sitting here going, this stuff is amazing, you know? And just because in some cases it doesn't come from here or if it's, because of its origins does not make it any less valid or interesting or significant in any way. Um, yeah, it, it, it was, you know, like it was a huge reason why I kind of got into why radio sucks and ran my website for a couple of years mm-hmm. um, on that. Mm-hmm. Um, Could you tell people it, what you did again, by the way? Oh again. yeah. So, so a guy, Gosh, I wish I could remember his name. It's been so many years. So a guy started a website in early 2001 called DenverRadioSucks.com. And it was like, because Denver used to have one of the best radio mm-hmm. scenes, I think, of any any city in the country. Um, in fact, like a lot of formats that were adopted elsewhere, like KBCO's adult album-oriented alternative was the originator of that format, was oh, KBCO. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, anyway, phenomenal scene. And so anyway, he started this site. He ran an online radio station, I think, called westernstatic.com. It's, I mean, all this stuff is long gone. He mm-hmm. ran it for about a year. I read about it in the newspaper in the Denver Post or something. So I reached, I was a regular contributor to the page. It was, this was pre-blogs. This was, this was early days, right? There was no social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like you going to a website. And um, after about a year, he said, I'm going to stop doing the website. I'm like, I emailed, emailed him right away. And I'm like, dude, I will do it. Mm-hmm. I'll run this way. So I met with him. He lived only like 12, 15 minutes away from me near Sloan's Lake, handed me the keys to it. And so I ran DenverRadioSucks.com for about, I guess, about three or four years. And then I stopped doing it around 2005. Like, yeah. yeah. And then, um, and so, yeah. So, I mean, the best stretch was the earlier stretch. Um, 
like getting I got a Westward award for best anti-ready website. They made a category for me. That was kind of fun. Yeah, and you had an um, article, didn't you? Didn't they write an article? Yeah, yeah, Michael Roberts yeah. from Westward interviewed me. And that was probably it was like fall of 2002, I want to say, when that happened. Wow. And uh yeah, and then yeah, they gave me that award the next year. And then a couple things here and there happened. Um, I was always trying to stir things up, uh, you know, because one of the things that I really bristled at was the lack of live radio interaction. So a radio DJ now is being voice tracked to thousands or hundreds of stations all across the country um, doing their radio show. Okay. I'm doing the Colorado Springs radio station bit now. And so he'll be on the radio for three hours, but he's sitting in his studio in, uh, you know, in some other part of the country Mm -hmm. and he's just recording all his spots that they'll place in between all the songs and pretend like he's local. And it was, that kind of stuff that I just felt like, you know, that clear channel particularly was the most guilty of, but other radio stations, um, you know, as the consolidation continued. So anyway, I used to, you know, I got a lot of people in the radio industry in Denver sending me off the record stuff all the time. Just saying this sucks. I used to work, you know, we, we, you know, this is how it used to be. This is how it is now, you know, and I feel bad for these guys because they have to make a living. They have a, you know, sometimes they have families to support and all that stuff. And, uh, and it's, but they're almost be rendered useless in a way, because now the, the reason why they were hired in the first place no longer applies because of how technology has changed and how now we can voice track our, you know, we can have 60 DJs voice track 250 radio stations every day. And then now the local elements of what made radio stations so great to a community is almost completely gone and it sucks. And it was really frustrating for me. It's why I stayed with it for as many years as I did. I tried to get into online radio. Originally I wanted to get into radio. That was kind of one of my initial Mm -hmm. goals in college. Um, But that whole sort of thing kind of jaded me enough where I'm like, I'm not going to go work at clear channel. I'm not going to go work at Viacom or any of these other stations and doing a bunch of music that I hate. 12 mm-hmm. hours a day or whatever you know it just had no appeal to me whatsoever at that point so um you know i i mobile dj i've done that for 25 years now roughly mm-hmm. and i i've had my fill of playing a bunch of music i don't like if people want to pay me to do it i'll do it but it is not something i'm passionate about it, music as a service not djing as an art form you know so it has no real fun it's not a there's no real nothing really i get yeah. out of it so anyway well no i mean it's yeah and i appreciate that service because it's, a, it's something if i was i would do the same thing um, um my friend joe um was had briefly was doing a radio uh late night radio dj gig and um they would get very upset at him when he would deviate from the pre-programming that they had mm-hmm. and uh he was like i can't do this I can't do this. This is this is not if they're not letting you play good music and they're making you play. I mean, it was a classic rock station, so I mean, obviously, it was Leonard Skinner all the time, probably. So, <laughs> I, so I mean, if you if smoke you, on the water, smoke on the water, yeah. you know, and it's just like uh, I, and uh, you know, like anything by um, um, Thirty Eight Special or something like that. <laughs> uh, just it's it is like there's what's the point. What's it, what, why am I doing mm-hmm. this? I mean, and I know I'm sounding like a snob here, but I mean, to be honest with you, everyone, if you're born from like 1970, 
three to nineteen seventy eight nine. You you grew up being a music elitist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it it's is just DNA. It's in our DNA. I don't I don't know why, but it, it is something <laughs> that has been kind of hammered into us. Um, but I, anyway, I did just we're we're up against it. So I just like to to leave us with this jam. I kind of want to like when I'm in whenever I have my my uh, old 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 man friends come in. Uh, I want to uh, I want to have them leave the audience with like something that you have discovered lately. Something something that you have been listening to that you're like, yeah, this is this is pretty cool. Doesn't have to be uh, modern. Can be mm-hmm. anything that you just stumbled upon lately. Anything that worth mentioning on this podcast before we go. Yeah, um, let's see. So I did a lot of record uh, purchasing when I was out in the UK. Um, my favorite band, Orbital, came out with a, they call it 30-something, but it's like a catalog of, it's not a greatest hits release, but it's like an era of their 30th anniversary. It was supposed to come out two years ago, but, you know, COVID and all that. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, I've been listening to that a lot lately. It's got a bunch of uh, remixes by artists that they reached out to that were big fans of the band, but also has like modernized versions of songs that they performed live over the last 30 years that they, you know, here's the current version of what we're producing. You know, when we performed this song live, here's what it sounds like. They haven't put it on, on an album yet. But I've been listening to that. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think, you know, I've been working on it's a funny thing. I've been working on a lot of mashups lately. And oh. uh, <laughs> um, so I've been so funny. I, I, if, you know, you can check out my Twitter. I have a link to it on there. But uh, I matched up John Denver with the Chemical Brothers. And, <laughs> and um, it was a lot of fun. It turned out quite nicely. So I've been listening to a lot more John Denver than I have since before my dad passed away, who was a huge, <laughs> huge John Denver, John Denver fan. Like, I grew up on John Denver. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think what else I've been listening to. Uh, really, just, yeah, I guess kind of a lot of that stuff. You know, I listen to a lot of... Um, early to mid '90s electronic music, even just outside of Orbital, like that. When we were all obsessed with grunge out here and rock music, in, the UK particularly was obsessed with, you know, hardcore and techno and house music and drum and bass and jungle and all of these emerging breakbeat, all these emerging styles mm-hmm. that are. Um, and there's just some amazing, amazing stuff. And it's great, too, because some of it was produced on very old and rudimentary forms. Like, you can listen to it, and you can hear the tape hiss from the master recording and all of that kind of stuff. And it's just a gorgeous time to be alive for so many people. And there's just so many. It's great music because it's not squeaky clean and pure. It's very, it's very punk, even if it isn't technically punk music. Wow. So, anyway, wow. so I mean, well, go. that's a that's a good that's a good kind of direction to go to because, uh, um, it is you know, there's there's a wealth of things, and I I always point people towards the UK and 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 stuff like that where you can discover things even though you know it's may you may not be to your liking. It'll at least open open you up to something else. It'll open you up to a different point of view. Uh, I was one of the few people who really dug the song "Country House" from Blur back in 1995. <laughs> <laughs> And people were like, uh-huh. this, 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 this is the most British thing I've ever heard in my life. And I said, yes, that's why it's cool. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, well, John Michael, thank you for coming on the last minute uh, Gen X show. Uh, I appreciate it. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. My go, thanks my for having me on. Appreciate it. And, it. and this hasn't gone two hours, so I'm, I figure I am ahead of, well, well ahead of the game here. So um, I appreciate it. And everyone, check out the past episodes. Uh, John Michael was on the uh, Machina Machines of the Gods and Adore episode. And in fact, I think we did one before that where we just kind of did like mm-hmm. this one where we kind of BS about music. So uh, be sure and check all those out. They are on Apple and Spotify and wherever you can get uh, your music. And finally, JM. Twitter, what is your Twitter handle? Uh, it's my uh, J.M. DeShazer, D-E-S-H-A-Z-E-R. J.M. DeShazer, and you can find me at jmorton78 on Twitter. Thank you all for joining me on this latest Gen X show. I'll be back soon with another episode. Ta-ta.